Will you join me in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, O Lord, we, we pause just now and we lift our eyes up to You. We lift our eyes to our God and Heavenly Father, the One who has given His Son, Jesus Christ, that we might have life forever with Him by simply believing in Him for it. Lord, we are so grateful for the opportunity to have a reconciled life with You. We are so grateful to have the opportunity to come together as a church, as a family, and to get but a glimpse, but a taste of what Your kingdom, Your Son's kingdom is going to be like. Father, I pray now as we open up Your Word and look at precious truths that You have for us, I pray, Lord, that You would radically influence our lives. May Your Holy Spirit most especially be with us as we interpret Your Word and apply it to our very hearts. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. There was a phenomenon not too long ago um, at Starbucks. December 2006. Starbucks, both here and across the nation, was having something very significant happening in their stores. No one knew how it had started. No one knew uh, where the origin of this phenomenon was. But nevertheless, what was happening in Starbucks across the nation in December of 2006 was that people were buying coffees for the people behind them. Last December, across the nation, there would be people who would go to the register at Starbucks and they would quietly let the cashier know that they wanted to purchase the coffee or the tea or the biscuit of the person behind them. And so they would pay for it and go on their way. And the, person, the next person would come to the register and they would be told that their order had already been paid for. This happened to my wife. My wife, Casey, was in Starbucks last December. She's sitting in line, and the guy in front of her, uh, he didn't do it unannounced. He actually turned around and said, may I buy your drink? And she was kind of taken aback. She says, well, no, no, it's, it's quite all right. She wasn't aware of this phenomenon that had taken across all the Starbucks in the U.S. She said, no, no, that's fine. He says, no, really, I insist. I want to buy your drink. She said, no, you know, it's fine. <laughs> I've warned her. I said, honey, you know, you're... you're you're pretty cute. I think you're going to get hit on at Starbucks every once in a while. Sure enough. What she didn't realize is that this man was doing what so many others were doing across the nation. Buying the drink of the person behind them. Unwarranted blessing. Totally unmerited favor. The person behind them didn't deserve it whatsoever. And yet, out of the goodness of their heart... They wanted to purchase the coffee of the person behind them. Friends, the, the title of my message today is Unwarranted Blessing. Unwarranted Blessing. We're going to be in the book of Haggai today, as we've been in the last two weeks. 
And in the book of Haggai, we're going to be seeing here in our chapter today, chapter 2, verses 10 to 19, we are going to see unwarranted blessing. We are going to see God look upon His people, Israel, and out of no merit of their own, out of no warrant, out of no deserving that the, that the people of Israel have, God is going to bless them. Despite their sin, He's going to bless them. Despite their walking away from Him, He's going to bless them. Despite their grumbling as they build the temple of God, He says, I'm going to bless you. Unwarranted, unmerited blessing of God. Turn to Haggai chapter 2, verses 10 to 19. Now before we read our text today, I want to one more time bring us up to speed. You've seen, those of you who have been in this study have already seen this, but I want to bring everyone up to speed, everyone up on the same page, so that we can all see where we are in this book, what is going on in the book of Haggai. And I want to ask the question, what's happening in Haggai? Let me give you a time frame, briefly. From 605 to 586 B.C., Babylon conquered the nation of Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel. And the Jews were exiled to Babylon. That is, they were enslaved to another nation. But in 539 B.C., something happened. You see, the Persians came in. And they conquered Babylon. And the Persians were, great, were, were gracious toward Israel. And so King Cyrus sends the Israelites back home to Jerusalem. He says, go back. You have my blessing. Go back. I'll give you even Persian monies and you can go back to your land and build your temple. Build the temple again. Babylon had destroyed it. Now Persia was saying, build it again. Now sometime between 539 and 520, we don't know when, while the temple construction started, it also stopped. The people lost hope. The people became discouraged. They lost track of their priorities, if you will, and the temple construction Stopped. You can read about that in Ezra 4. In 520 B.C., the prophet named Haggai comes on the scene. And Haggai in 520 B.C. is in Jerusalem and he's going to be speaking the word of the Lord to the people who have stopped construction on the temple, who have started again as a result of Haggai's ministry in chapter 1, but now here in chapter 2 again, we still see that they are just not quite having the right motives as they construct the temple of God. They're still in sin. They're still in immorality. They're building up the temple of God, but friends, notice this very clearly. While they're building the temple of God, they wrongly believe that the construction, the mere presence of this temple will automatically bring about God's blessing upon their lives. They believe that as they build this holy building so also they will become holy and honorable in the sight of the Lord. Take a look at our text today. Haggai 2, verses 10 to 19. says this, On the twenty-fourth day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, that is the king of Persia, Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Now ask the priests, concerning the law, saying, If one carries holy meat in the fold of his garment, and with the edge of his garment, that is, he touches bread or stew, wine or oil or any food, 
will it become holy? And the priest answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if one who is unclean because of a dead body touches any of these, will it become unclean? So the priest answered and said, it shall be unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, so is this people. And so is this nation before me, says the Lord. And so is every work of their hands. And what they offer there is unclean. Verse 15. And now carefully consider, from this day forward, from before stone was laid upon stone in the temple of the Lord, since those days when one came to a heap of twenty epaphs, but there were ten, when one came to the wine vat to dry out fifty baths but from the wine press, but there were but twenty. I struck you with blight and mildew and hail in all the labors of your hands. Yet you did not turn to me, says the Lord. Consider now, from this day forward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, from the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider it. Is the seed still in the barn? As yet the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have not yielded fruit. But from this day, I will bless you. Now, if you're confused, you should be. Because this is not, at face value, a very easy piece of Scripture to understand. It takes a little bit of effort. And I'm going to ask you to exude a little bit of effort today as we go through God's Word. But in the end, when we walk through this text, you are going to see the beauty of what God is doing to the people of Israel. So take a look. We're going to go verse by verse per Claude Willis's suggestion. Verse by verse, starting in verse 10, says this, On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Now, we've got some indicators, uh, uh, some date indicators here, don't we? It says 24th day of the ninth month. Now, this is the Jewish calendar, friends. However, it's modern equivalent. If we were to, to take this back from our, uh, in our modern calendar terms, the date would be December 18th, 520 B.C. We know exactly the date in which Haggai is speaking the word of the Lord to the people in Jerusalem. December 18, 520 B.C. In that day, Haggai is speaking the word of the Lord, verse 11, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Now ask the priests concerning the law, saying, If one carries holy meat in the fold of his garment, and with the edge of his garment, he touches bread or stew, wine or oil or any food, will it... That food become holy? And the priest answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if one who is unclean because of a dead body touches any of these, that is, these foods, will it be unclean? So the priest answered and said, it shall be unclean. What is going on here? What is taking place in this dialogue? Haggai is speaking on behalf of Yahweh, the Lord. And he's speaking to the priests, that is to say, the spiritual leaders in Jerusalem. He is taking God's message to the priests. And this message includes 
Two questions. In reality, these are two case studies in Levitical practice. These are two case studies in the discipline of being a priest. It is as if I were to go to Glenn and Scott, who are architects, and I were to ask them two questions about architecture. That's their field. They should know the answers. They should be able to enlighten my questions with answers. So also here, Haggai, speaking the word of the Lord, is coming to the priests, asking them two questions about what they do. Tell me, as you conduct the priesthood, would you give me answers to these questions about your duties? The answers given by the priests are going to serve as an illustration of what God ultimately desires to tell His people Israel later on. Question one, he asks, If one carries holy meat in the fold of his garment, and with the edge of his garment he touches bread or stew, wine or oil or any food, will it, that food, become holy? No, they answer. When what is holy touches what is unclean, it becomes unclean. I say again, when what is holy touches what is unclean, what is unclean does not become holy, it remains unclean. The holiness, if you will, doesn't transmit. It doesn't carry over. When what is holy touches what is unclean, that which is unclean remains unclean. It does not become holy. Question two. If one who is unclean because of a dead body, that is, they touched a dead body, touches any of these things, these foods, will it be unclean, that is, the foods? And they say, well, yes, of course. Of course it will be unclean. It shall be unclean. Whatever touches an unclean person becomes unclean. Contamination abounds. Two things. Holiness doesn't transmit. Contamination abounds. In both cases, the answer here is that these things remain unclean. They remain unfit, if you will, to be used in the temple. The priests know this. These are rather simple answers. They wonder where Haggai is leading them as he's getting them to affirm the word unclean. Verse 14, Then Haggai answered and said, So are you. So is this people. And so is this nation before me, says the Lord. And so is every work of their hands. And what they offer there is unclean. Let me paraphrase. Like the case studies in verses 11 to 13, so also Israel is unclean before the Lord. Israel's contamination abounds to every work of their hands, most especially the building of the temple. And the sacrifices that Israel offers in this temple are unclean. You see, friends, the people of Israel and their priests 
assumed that the mere presence of the temple, the mere presence of the temple building in their midst would necessitate God's blessing upon them. They believed that by rebuilding this holy place, that they themselves would be seen as holy before the Lord. They supposed that God would be grateful or even indebted unto them for their hard labor and their toil in constructing the temple in Jerusalem. Friends, make no mistake. As they built God's house, as they built this holy temple, the Israelites assumed that God's blessing would be automatic and instant upon them. But holiness doesn't transmit. Contamination abounds. Just as your answers to the questions were both unclean, so also is this people and this nation unclean. And so is all the work of their hands. What are they working on? They're building up the temple of God. And so is all, all of what they offer. What are they offering? They're offering sacrifices in the temple of God. How great was their misconception of what God desired of them? Did God desire that they build the temple? Of course He did. Of course He did. That was His command. Look at chapter 1. It says, build my temple. Stop building your house. Build my house. But do you suppose that the physical construction of the temple, the holy temple made Israel holy? Of course not. Holiness doesn't transmit. Do you suppose that people who are actively living in sin and whose hearts are calloused and cold could possibly create a temple that was holy and pleasing to the Lord? No. Contamination would abound. Israel here, friends, is... There's no other way to put it other than they are technically fulfilling God's command. They are technically fulfilling God's command. God said in Haggai chapter 1, through the prophet Haggai, He goes up to them and says, Stop building your house. Build my house. They oblige. They stop building their homes. And they start building the temple. But they carry out their effort in such a way that it is a technical fulfillment of what God asked them to do. Their sin still abounds. Their hearts are not in it. They're calloused and cold. God says technical fulfillment, technical obedience, fulfilling the letter of the law. I'm not interested in it. What you think you're building is holy. The holiness in the temple does not transmit to you. No, you are unclean. And so contamination is going to abound. Technical fulfillment is not what God desires. Now friends, we might suppose here at this point in the story um, that God is going to yet again discipline Israel for her failure to seek the Lord. After all, Seventy years prior, they were sent to Babylon for their sin and unfaithfulness, for their contamination, for their uncleanness. But times of temporal discipline and punishment upon Israel, while they've been abundant 
in their not too distant past. Now is not the time for another instance of discipline. At the time that Haggai is writing, the people are still experiencing famine and drought, contamination and uncleanness. But in verses 15 to 19, we're going to see God take a different course of action. Take a new technique, if you will, to interacting with His people who are in sin. And friends, this is where I believe we can learn so much from the character of God. Take a look at verses 15 to 18, and then culminating in verse 19 at the end here. 15 to 18, he says this, 2.15, Now carefully consider from this day forward, that is, from the 24th day of the ninth month and forward, and also consider from before the temple, notice this, 15, from before the stone was laid upon stone in the temple of the Lord, since those days, consider it as well, when one came to a heap of twenty epaphs, but there were but ten. When one came to the wine vat to draw out fifty baths from the wine press, but there were but twenty. I struck you, the Lord said, with blight and mildew and hail in all the labors of your hands, yet you did not turn to me, says the Lord. Consider now, from this day forward, all the way back from the Excuse me, consider now from this day forward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, and also from the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. Consider it. Now, what is going on here? Haggai is asking the people, through the word of the Lord, to consider all of their days. He's asking them to consider all of their days. In the text behind me, you'll notice some coloration. He's saying, consider, consider, consider. He uses it three times. This should be reminiscent, by the way, of chapter 1, verses 5 and 7, where he says, consider, consider, consider your ways. Take stock of what you've been doing. In green, at the top, consider it from before stone was laid upon stone. The next green, consider now where we are here today. The next green element, consider from the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. Consider all of these days, if you will, Haggai is saying to them. Consider all of the days from the time you returned, from before you started working on the temple, to the time that you laid the temple, to the time that is now nine months, 24th day. Look at all of it. What has been happening to you, Israel? What has been happening to you? When one came to a heap, of twenty epaphs, but there were but ten. That is to say, a bushel of grain. When one came to twenty bushels of grain, you only found ten of them, didn't you? When one came to the wine vat to draw out fifty baths from the press, that is nine gallons, that's one bath. So when you were seeking an abundance of wine, you only received a little bit. All of this suggests terrible famine and drought from before the temple was laid, to the laying of the temple, to today, famine, drought. Look at verse 17 in particular. Blight, mildew, hail, in all the labors of your hands. Yet you did not turn to Me, says the Lord. What is He saying in verses 15 to 18? He's saying, in the past, when the work of your hands were unclean, I disciplined you. 
In the past, I've sent treacherous weather conditions upon you and prohibited you from reaping a harvest. I punished you. I punished the work of your hands. Now again, in verse 14, God is calling them out yet again and saying, the labor of your hands is unclean. What you are doing is unclean. The work on the temple is being technically fulfilled. But their personal lives remain in sin, greed, and unfaithfulness. What would God do this time? If in verses 15 to 18, the work of their hands was punished and disciplined, what would He do of them now in verse 14 when He says yet again, the labor of your hands is unclean. We should expect Him to continue the punishment, right? We should expect Him to continue the discipline. We should expect the Lord to prolong the famine. Prolong the drought. He did it in 15-18. to Why not do it again in verse 14? But friends, just as a loving earthly father occasionally chooses to show mercy to his wayward son instead of discipline, so also there are times when our Heavenly Father shows love and mercy to you and to me instead of discipline when we sin against Him. Take a look at verse 19. He says, Is the seed still in the barn? As yet the vine, the fig, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have not yielded fruit, but from this day I will bless you. Zero in on verse 9. I've got lots of pretty colors there for you. Look at verse 9 in particular here. Next slide, please. Now you're going to notice a Jewish calendar. A little history lesson here. A um, little lesson in the Jewish calendar year. The Jewish crop year, if you will. Now, we see here uh, the months listed 1 to 12 and their correspondence with, with our months in, the, in our modern equivalent. Um, we are in the ninth month of, of Kislev, if you will, the 24th day. And you see there, it's the equivalent of our November and December, so December 18th, okay? Uh, there was grain planting at that time. See, my text reads, is the seed still in the barn? Now, why would the seed still be in the barn if it was time for grain planting? In fact, it's the end of grain planting, if you will, because it starts in the eighth month and ends in the ninth month. Why do you suppose the seed is still in the barn? Because you see, Israel was losing hope. All of their crops were failing. All the work of their hands were being disciplined and punished. And so they left the seed in the barn because they were throwing up their hands saying, it's not going to grow anyway. What does it matter? Everything we plant... It dies. All the seeds, all the fruit, all the olives, the grapes, they wither away. Famine, drought, blight, mildew, hail. Why bother? Take a look at the coloration here too. You'll notice, I hope you can see this, in yellow is the grain seed. In green is the olive planting. 
In red is the vine and the fig, the grape and the fig. And in pink, if you can read that, is the pomegranate, the summer fruit. You see what's happening? They've planted. They've planted from the fourth month and the fifth month. They've tried to get fruit in these months, four, five, six, seven, eight. And every month that goes by, their crops have failed. Why is the seed still in the barn? They've lost all hope. They've lost all hope. They say, why bother? Why bother planting the grain? It will not sprout. Why bother? Verse 19, is the seed still in the barn? As yet the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have not yielded fruit. Now zero in on this, friends. But from this day, I will bless you. No, the last six months have yielded no harvest. We've been plagued by famine and drought, blight, mildew and hail. We've not been able to harvest our crops. Things are bad, right? Yes, they're bad. Do you know why they're bad? Because they're unclean before the Lord. Their contamination abounds. The holiness of the temple does not transmit to them. The sacrifices they offer are unclean. Would God prolong this? Now look at verse 19, friends. Don't miss the end of verse 19. But from this day, I will bless you. But from this day, I will bless you. There's no other way to describe this, friends, than unwarranted blessing. There is nothing I can point to. There's not one thing that I can point to in the book of Haggai that would warrant God's blessing right now. They don't deserve it. They are unclean, in sin. And yet God says, I'm going to bless you anyway. I'm going to bless you anyway. Uh, what we see here is God exercising mercy instead of discipline to instruct. What we see here is God using mercy instead of punishment to correct His people. Using a different tactic, if you will. When, I, uh, when Casey and I... Um, not too long ago, we had uh, a couple friend of ours. Um, none of you know them. Uh, they, they got pregnant out of wedlock. Pregnant out of wedlock. These two people were influential in their church. They, uh, they were well-known. Maybe up on stage, helping the youth group and whatnot. They... they were loved by the people of the church. They were admired. Uh, they were mentors to some in the church. And they got pregnant out of wedlock. As you might imagine, uh, there, was, there was quite a reaction in the church in this situation. Uh, there were some in the church that were of the persuasion that, boy, time for discipline. Time for punishment. Time to correct these two. 
who have led so many astray by their actions. Don't let them get married in the church. Oh, no. Don't let her wear a white dress. No, no, we can't do that. We need to hold these two up in such a way that says, shame on you. Let's discipline them. Let's punish them. Let's certainly not bless them. Fortunately, uh, there were others. uh, And I know that uh, Casey and I, um, by no means to toot our own horn, but we brought them in. And we said, hey, we want you to come down and, and spend some time with us. And they did. They came down to our house. And uh, Casey and I didn't even bring it up. We could tell these two were beaten and broken and repentant. And at the end of all hope, and we didn't even bring it up, we just loved them and we cared for them and we treated them as if we had always the same way we'd always treated them. And I remember uh, as they were leaving, I, they didn't even need to say it. I could see the relief on the look of their faces. I think that they anticipated that when they came down to Casey and I to see us, that we would spend some time maybe lecturing them. That we would spend some time maybe saying, wow, have you seen what you've done? Yeah. Are you sure you're repentant? Yeah. Are you sure you're not going to do it again? No. I think that in part they assumed that that we were, like some in their church, not all, some, were ready to pound them, to discipline them, to remind them of just how low they they had gone. But it was not the right thing to do. It was not the time for discipline and correction. I had already looked upon these two and seen their broken lives as a result of this event. They were embarrassed. They were humiliated. They were repentant. And Casey and I just said, hey, come on down. We want to to enjoy your company. We want to support you too. We want to encourage you as you go on to marriage and raise up your family. And so they did, friends. And today, uh, I'm happy to say that 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 couple um, with their beautiful, beautiful baby are doing really well right now. Really well. Why do I bring this up? Mercy corrects. Mercy instructs. Does discipline and punishment and chastisement correct and train and and, and refine us? You bet it does. Very often, discipline brings people to repentance. But there are times, there are moments, there are instances in which discipline and correction, friends, is not the route to take, but yet to show mercy and to show love, and to show unwarranted blessing. And in the end, I find in my life that that, war- that that brings about more holiness, that that brings about more repentance, that that brings about a greater change of heart in the one who has sinned than if I were to chastise them. Jesus knew of this. Matthew 9, verses 10-13. to 13. Now it happened as Jesus sat at the table in the house that, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came. Tax collectors and sinners came. 
and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said, Why does your teacher eat with these people? When Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I have come to call the right, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Friends, this is precisely what Jesus was doing here. He was going in the homes of sinners and tax collectors and sitting down with them, knowing full well that the mercy that he was showing to them was more likely to turn them to repentance and to turn their lives away from sin and to turn them toward the Messiah, Jesus Christ, than if he were to walk into that house and tell them how bad they truly were. Jesus knew of this. Paul knew of this. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Does it read, I beseech you therefore, brethren, in view of God's coming judgment, punishment, and chastisement upon all the world for their sin, to present yourselves holy? Is discipline, punishment, and chastisement the reason here Paul cites for turning their lives into holiness? Uh-uh. He says, I urge you out of God's mercy. I urge you people to look at what God has done for you in Jesus Christ and in looking at that mercy to turn unto holiness. This is powerful, friends, because I find today that in some cases, in some churches, in some groups, in some families, we assume that discipline is the only way to correct them. We assume that physical correction, that some sort of physical punishment is going to best teach our children, best teach that sinner how to turn and turn to the Lord. But we see Jesus showing mercy. We see Paul saying, look at the mercies of God that, you're, that you may present your bodies a living sacrifice that is holy and pleasing to God. Paul doesn't open his letters and he doesn't close his letters, for that matter, with the words punishment, chastisement, and discipline from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He says grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. These are the things that Paul wants to leave with the churches. Grace, mercy, and peace. Because he knows that meditating on these things, meditating on the mercy that Jesus Christ has shown them, is just as effective, if not more so, of warning people of God's coming judgment. Application. What can we learn from our, our text today? What did we see in Haggai today that we can take and put into our own lives? First, God is not pleased with technical obedience, friends. Fulfilling the letter of the law will never justify you in the eyes of God. He is not interested in you technically carrying out His commands. He wants your heart. He wants the intentions of your heart. He wants you to have pure motives, to rely on His Spirit as you do His work. Two, God corrects and instructs us by means of discipline and mercy. He uses both. He uses both in the Old Testament. He uses both in the New. There are times when mercy is just as instructive as discipline. And that's my third point here. The exercising of mercy can be just as effective, I might add, or more so, 
as the exercising of discipline in helping people repent of their sin. Fourth, we have been given the unwarranted blessing of eternal life by faith in Jesus Christ. Accept God's mercy today before His judgment tomorrow. I can't emphasize this enough. As Claude mentioned in his testimony, uh, so clearly I might add, friends, the mercy of God through Jesus Christ is available right now. It's right before you. And what God desires of you is that you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. Believe in Jesus Christ, the giver of everlasting life, and you will be with God forever. It's an unwarranted blessing. You don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. None of us deserve this blessing. And yet God's put this mercy in front of us in lieu of the wrath that He set aside to His Son. He's put this mercy before us and He said, take it now. Because judgment is coming. Take the route of mercy today, friends. Because judgment is coming. I urge you now, if you've never done so before, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. If that is something that you wish to do today, I urge you to speak with me and the elders. Even now in your hearts, you can believe and be saved. But let us know if you've made that, that all-important decision today. And we would like to, to help you in your early and new walk with Jesus Christ. Let's, let's close in a word of prayer, shall we? Heavenly Father, God, there is unwarranted blessing that You have bestowed upon us. There is unmerited favor that You have given us in Your Son, Jesus Christ. And it is similar to what we see in Haggai today, Father the Israelites in Jerusalem did not deserve anything. Their crops were failing. They were in sin. They had turned away from You. Unrepentant. Technically, technically obeying You, Father, but their hearts were not in it. And yet You said, but here is what I'm going to do. I'm going to bless You. I'm going to use mercy to correct You. I'm going to use unmerited blessing to instruct You. Father, help us to use mercy, as also we use discipline, but to use mercy to instruct and correct and to build up and to edify and to bring people to repentance. This is the pattern Your Son, Jesus Christ, used often. This is the pattern Paul used often. Father, help us to be mindful that mercy instructs just as much as discipline and sometimes more so. May we be merciful people. May we show mercy to sinners. May we not hold their sin above their head indefinitely, but may we show them love and grace as Your Son, Jesus Christ, has shown it to us. In His name we pray. Amen.